And you'd be surprised at how many people think we truck 850 animals to Florida or something. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hi! Hello! How are you? Welcome to another episode of the Raw Safari Podcast. Now, I know most of you were expecting a joke there, usually a pretty lame one that I spend way too long thinking about, but uh, we're skipping that today because this is a very serious episode. This one really matters. And, um, you know, it's it's coming from Southwick Zoo, who you've heard on here before. And um, we have a different person that we're going to be interviewing, but I'm just, I'm so excited to share all of this with you. Because okay, it, stop talking. Excuse me? <laughs> I'm going to need you to stop talking. What is happening right this, now? This is, this is a co-host situation. And so now it's my turn. Oh, okay. Um, well, then why don't you go ahead and say what we're, who we're going to be talking to? Okay, everyone, we are going to be interviewing my boss. I am so excited for you guys to hear from Betsy Brewer Bethel. That's a lot of Bs. Yeah, it is. I like alliteration. So um, (laughs) for those who might not have heard and don't recognize this voice, who the heck are you and why are you co-hosting my podcast? Oh, that's right. My name is Danny Poirier Larson, and I work at Southwick's Zoo, and I have been on the podcast before. I am the curator of birds in training at the zoo. Why are you giving me that face? Because curator of birds and training is not what your name tag says. What does your name tag say? Oh, yeah. My name tag says mother of birds. <laughs> <laughs> little little Game of Thrones reference there, yes. y'all. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So I'm really excited. Danny is going to be co-hosting and asking some of the questions, and it's going to be a really, really amazing time. Danny, thank you for doing this. Absolutely. So yes, I'm very excited to have Danny Poirier-Larsen back on the podcast, this time as my co-host. And uh, hi, hello, how are you? Welcome to the pod. Again, I'm so, so grateful that y'all are here. Uh, as you can probably tell, I recorded that part uh, earlier with Danny when, uh, when I did the initial interview. And now I'm recording the rest of this intro sitting in the back lounge of a tour bus because I'm back on the road and that's how we go and get this done right now. It looks really cool. It's a lot of fun being back here doing the two things I love at the same time. Uh, and I'm just excited to to be bringing these next episodes to you uh, from my time playing in New England as I'm currently touring through the Midwest right now doing the same show. Life is weird when you are a traveling, touring musician, y'all. Also, if this audio is a little weird, that's why. I'm on a bus. There's like vents and wheels and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. But I'll do my best to keep it clean and sounding good for y'all. Anyway, um, oh yeah, there's also like cast members here. The whole thing is just kind of crazy. But anyway, um, so we're going to be back at Southwick's. It's going to be Danny and I talking to Betsy Brewer Bethel, as she said. And um, there are a couple things I wanted to tell you about this. First of all, Betsy is the vice president Director of Conservation, Education, and Research, and the Chief Marketing Officer of the zoo. And one of my favorite little moments in this episode is that when she says those titles, she kind of says them backwards. And I feel like I do the same thing. When people ask me what I do for a living, I'm like, I play the drums. When really, I'm a music supervisor and a music director, and I make these arrangements up, and I do recording work, and I am a production liaison and a casting director, and all these other things that are like more important titles. But drumming is what I do, and getting the word out about conservation is what Betsy does, and that's what's important to her. So yeah, she's one of the VPs of the zoo, but... You know, that's an afterthought, just just like it is for me. And I just, I really liked that. Um, both Betsy and I kind of bury the lead with our titles a little bit. Anyway, this episode has a lot of really cool stuff in it. Um, we talk about how just when you grow up, you kind of see whatever your life is as normal. Like Miles thinks it's perfectly normal that daddy goes off and tours. And 
Betsy growing up uh, in a house where animals were being hand-raised and stuff when they were sick for the zoo. That was normal to her. And um, the same is true for, for her children now. We talk about all this. It's, it's really cool. And um, we talk about some great conservation efforts that you're, gonna, you're just going to love. And then, I kid you not, you are getting seven Rossafari poop stories. Poop story. They're all really quick. I guess you could call them <clears throat> little nuggets. <laughs> I apologize for that. But uh, yeah, so um, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, here's an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. And also, don't forget to make sure that you're following along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on TikTok at Rossafari Pod, and that you can support the pod at patreon.com slash Rossafari. As a matter of fact, if you are a patron, you get some bonus audio from this interview, not with Betsy herself, but me and Danny laughing and sharing some stories and having a good and really, really goofy time. Trust me, the $3 a month, which is our lowest tier that, that gets you the audio, um, is worth it for, for this extra audio alone. It is goofy and hilarious and everything you love about the pod. And one last thing before we get to the interview. There's an all-new Rossafari.com. It has been completely redesigned from the ground up and now features merch. That's right, y'all. You can get your Rossafari logo, shirts, and hoodies. And even more importantly, your What's Your Poop Story merch. That's right, y'all. You can now get things that say, what's your poop story, Ross Safari? I mean, come on, if you are a keeper or even just a parent, how do you not want that? You want that? Go get that. Rossafari.com. Also, you can get my stickers there. So uh, yeah, Rossafari.com for all of your awesome merch and to learn more about the pod. You can even listen there if you want to. Okay, that was a heck of a lot of words. So uh, without further ado, let's get to some more words with my interview co-hosted by Danny Poirier-Larson with Betsy Brewer-Bethel of Southwick's Zoo and Earth Limited. All right, so we'll start off with the standard questions. Uh, tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. My name is Betsy Brewer-Bethel, and we are at Southwick Zoo. And what are we doing here today? We're going to talk animals and other stuff. Sounds good. And what is what is your, your official title here? What is your position? Let's see. My official title has shifted, changed, moved around, but it's usually the chief marketing officer, the director of conservation education and research, as well as I'm a vice president. So we have a lot of titles here. I think being a private facility we all kind of wear a lot of hats and jump in where we need to and have to. And so there's a lot of different things that we do. And actually, education and conservation is really tightly connected with marketing. So it all works out pretty well. That's good. That's that's important. One thing that I always push for on this podcast is encouraging people uh, at zoos to share more of the conservation work they do and the behind-the-scenes stuff, because I think a lot of times zoos just, you know, here's a cute picture of a giraffe, yay! And I think the work that's being done is so incredibly important. So I, I love that you're coming at it from the perspective of those being tied together. Well, absolutely. And, you know, we have to get our message out. And I always think that people are very surprised to find out that, first of all, we're a private zoo, and our initiatives with conservation, education, and research are huge. 
So I think most people generally feel that the federally state city funded zoos are the ones that are doing all the conservation work. And we have an entire nonprofit here dedicated to conservation and education. And for anybody that finds out about our programs, I'm th- I think they're generally surprised, but also very proud that we're following this path. I think for me, especially, my passion is definitely education conservation. And we try to focus on children, so a lot of our programs are children-based. In the course of my career, I found out that if you can change the children's attitudes, then you'll change the adults. You know, at one time I focused on adult learning, and it doesn't work as well as the kids going home and telling their parents not to use a plastic bag or having a challenge that the parents have to get in on. It's a much better way for to teach children and adults about things that matter. That makes sense. That's that's really cool. And yeah, I agree with you. Um, when I first got into this podcast, um, you know, making this and stuff, uh, somebody recommended Danny as a guest, and and obviously she's amazing. Um, but it was the same kind of thing. I was like, oh, a private zoo, interesting. And I, I don't really know, you know, I didn't know Danny at the time, but I trusted the person who re- who made the recommendation. And um, she starts talking about Earth and all the the conservation stuff here, and it was. Like you said, I was shocked, but in a good way. And and I fell in love with, with Southwicks. It's it's an amazing place. And Thank you. And yeah. Danny does an amazing job. She's our bird trainer extraordinaire. And it's not that, you know, our birds get trained to do some strange, interesting behaviors. It's all natural behaviors. So I think when the audience sees the programs that we offer, they're quite impressed, but also um, they acknowledge that, you know, we're not a circus type of place. We're focusing on education. We're focusing on conservation. And Earth Limited is focusing on all of these things. So with our memberships, uh, that's how we remain fiscally responsible, through memberships where you get unlimited visits to Southwick Zoo. All of that money goes towards education and conservation. So for the most part, I think when people find that out, they're really happy about that. And it makes them want to support. I had a meeting with a a gentleman and his grandson the other day who are Earth members, and he wants his grandson to be more involved. And I meet some of these kids, and they're amazing. Um, I learned a lot uh, one day about octopuses, stingrays, manta rays, and the differences between all of them. So the kids come up with something that they're focused on, passionate about, and it really kind of snowballs. You know, sometimes I see these kids for... 10, 15 years till they grow up and move on. And this young boy was 10 years old, and he told me he's going to raise $1,000 for rhino conservation before September 22nd, which is World Rhino Day. That's incredible. That's really awesome. Uh, so tell me your, um, your history with animals and the zoo and, and, and how you're here and why you're here. Well, Southwick Zoo, actually the homestead here dates back to 1803, and it was my grandfather who was a dairy farmer. And his dairy herd was Ashare Cows, and it was about 1953 when he sold off the herd and started concentrating on his love of birds. He actually became one of the world's leading authorities on migratory waterfowl, and he was a farmer. So he had, I can remember as a kid and a very young child, he had crazy looking birds. You know, we didn't have information back then or the internet or anything. So, you know, when you saw Polish chickens or, or pigeons or whatever else he had in the barn, it was kind of like strange. People would come up and check out his crazy bird collection and he decided to put a donation box out. So he did that and he started collecting some money and he was hoping for a cash customer for his birds, but never found one. So major zoos throughout the country heard about his exotic bird collection and they wanted to trade him with other animals for the birds. And that's what started happening. So Southwick Zoo kind of happened by default, I guess. And a lot of people came up here and were interested. So he officially opened up to the public in 1963 and my mom and dad joined him and um, with us five kids. So we grew up here. And it was interesting and amazing and crazy. And I think as kids, you never realize that, you know, your life is any different than anybody else's. Right, right. So you just think, you know, maybe everybody has a kangaroo hopping around their house or, (laughs) 
you know, when you're bottle feeding the lion cub, that it's not that interesting to other people. So growing up was kind of crazy. And, you know, I'm talking about, you know, over 55 years ago. So things were different with animals then, you know, our, uh, our enclosures were different, how we house them and group them were different. Over the years, we've definitely educated ourselves on the best way to have animals in an inhuman care environment. So, you know, some of the exhibits back then weren't up to par, but over the years, uh, we've definitely changed them because what we want and what we desire is species-typical behavior. You want an animal in an exhibit or in their habitat that acts like it normally would if it was out in the wild. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Hey, Danny, ask a question. (laughs) You want me to just pop in here and ask any old question? Okay. Well, I admire Betsy so much. I always have. And it's like just an honor to work for somebody who shares that similar passion for education and conservation that I do. And I think that being on a team and working for you and you've supported me in my professional development so much, and that's been important to me and important to me as a leader in my, on my staff too. So I'm curious as to how you kind of did that for yourself early in your career and stepped up to the plate when it came to saying, okay, I'm a family member running Southwick Zoo, but I want to take education and conservation to the next level. And kind of like how you were inspired to go get your master's in Start Earth. And like, that's a really loaded question, but I don't know if, if you kind of know where I'm going with this, but. Um, wow. That's yeah. a lot, but that's cool. And I admire you too. And I think, um, you know, when you have people working together that have have the same passion, it really goes a lot farther. You know, when I initially started out um, wanting to increase and expand our programs and develop Earth, it was really kind of difficult because, you know, as a private zoo, we don't have all those funds. So it was very, very difficult to try to develop programming without money. So I think in the beginning, it was probably me just going off and doing Zoomobile after Zoomobile after Zoomobile. And those are programs where we bring animal ambassadors to schools. And one thing that really helped at that time, it was around 1989, where the programs really started taking off because Bill Clinton was president at the time. And that was when um, the early childhood acts came into effect. And there was funding for um, certain programming to go into daycares and preschools for early child development. And that really gave us a bump up because those were all government-supported programs. So the people that had those programs would support us by hiring the Zoomobile program. And, I mean, I was going into homes, you know, private daycares, third-story homes in New Bedford. I remember that, you know, with animals and doing presentations for them. I remember one time I was in someone's house, and the one of the parrots ripped her nice drapes by her sliding glass door apart, and I was like, oh, no. But she loved the program so much. She said, don't worry about it. It's all fine. So um, I think that really helped. And then uh, developing Earth, I thought about that through the 90s, and finally that came to fruition in 1989, 1999. So, um, and I thought that having a nonprofit would really give me a leg up, and I wrote 14 grants, and I got 14 rejections, and I was like, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. So it's been very slow growth, but very steady. And each year we've expanded more and capitalized on the people that are interested. So we developed, you know, after hours tours, junior zookeeping, summer camps, which have exploded. And I think, you know, to connect kids with nature is difficult. I had one of the kids in the summer camp program last year tell me, I said, we should take a walk in nature. And he said, there's an app for that. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, there's an app for taking a walk in nature. Jeez. So, um, 
you know, try to connect the kids to animals. And for me, I've always said, and I'll always believe this, if you can get close to the animals, if you can form an intimate attachment to them, you're going to care more. You know, you're going to, you're going to find out what's happening out in the wild. And, you know, the bottom line is it's human population growth. We don't like to discuss that. I did a program one time, geez, it must've been 30 years ago on human population growth. And a teacher said to me one day, nobody wants to hear it. And I was like, you're right. Nobody does want to hear it. You know, so we're definitely encroaching in all the wild lands where animals thrive. So it's, it's a difficult balance. And that's what we try to teach people at earth. You know, how do we find that balance? And I call myself a walking contradiction all the time. You know, I think we all are at times, but just to just every little bit counts And if every person just did a small part, it would make a huge difference. It really would. And I think sometimes we feel so overwhelmed with the issues that face our planet that it gets really difficult to think that one individual with 7.5 billion people on the planet matters. So that's where I'm coming from, that perspective, is, you know, let's make the small changes that will turn into big changes, hopefully. So... Like I said, it's been a long road, and that was a big question. But as we built, and we built small, and, you know, all you guys came on board, we developed a good group of people that really care about education and conservation. And I'm really proud of all our educators and our zookeepers and everybody that cares about these issues that are facing, you know, not only our animals here in the zoo, but also animals that are on reserves and in the wild and other places that are fragmented and need our help, you know, like rainforest areas. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, uh, that's so cool to hear all of that. I, I, my message on this podcast a lot is about how personal responsibility matters, how Mm -hmm. one person can make a difference. Um, I see more and more on the internet every day right now where people are like, well, big corporations are the main problem. So who cares if I use a plastic bag? And I'm always like, well, the sea turtle that you potentially killed, cares you know like it it does matter so um it's really cool to hear you say that now i think we should take a step back because we've talked about earth and the fact that you've created earth but if a listener hasn't heard danny's episode then they're wondering if you think you're god and actually created earth so what is (laughs) earth limited and um what is the goal like tell me the basics like earth 101 Okay, here we go. Earth 101. So Earth Limited is a nonprofit 501c3 organization located at Southwick Zoo. So we are the nonprofit arm of the zoo, and we support everything conservation, uh, education, and some research as well. The mission of Earth is to inspire commitment to protect and conserve our planet and our future. And... Our mission statement has changed. It used to be uh, about animal ecology and endangered species, but we've kind of enveloped the whole planet into this to um, inspire commitment to protect our planet. And we have grown quite a bit over the years. It somehow, when I look back, it, it it's like, how did we get here, you know? And I think it's baby steps. I really do. I think each year we just expanded and, and grew more. And when I look at all of the programs that we offer and everybody that's involved, it it um, I I'm really proud of it. Very proud of it. And we will continue to do so. And going back to the other thing about Southwick Zoo being a for profit zoo is I, I don't think people realize that this really is a labor of love. It's not about it's certainly not about money. I can tell you that right now. Because the cost to maintain a zoo of this size is enormous. We are open six months of the year, and the main zoo grounds are closed for six months. So everything that happens during the summer, all of that money that comes in, our emissions proceeds goes towards all of the renovations, the upkeep, the exhibit design, the heating, the housing, the feed, the veterinary care. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The maintenance is just crazy. And um, we have 22 heated buildings for animals in the wintertime. You know, and that's probably the number one question that people ask is where do the animals go in the winter? And you'd be surprised at how many people think we truck 850 animals to Florida or something. (laughs) So, 
Um, I feel like it might be cheaper, honestly, <laughs> but not good for their, their, their right. animals, but yeah. <laughs> so um, we, and you know, some of our animals enjoy the winter more than the summer. Right. So, and people are generally surprised that the lions and tigers are out in the winter. Their coats get really thick. They actually look gorgeous, but we're built on a hill. You know, we're out in the countryside. We can't be open in the winter. The pathways get really slippery, but the zookeepers are here all winter long outside working and taking care of all of these animals. Absolutely. I love that. Um, you know, I, I, I have to give you some quick props. Not only is the work that Earth is doing very cool, but I am obsessed with the logo of Earth. Um, the whole elephant and then... Antelope. Um, you know, antelope. And River. Then, oh, oh, take it away, <laughs> yeah. And then tree it's, and then... <laughs> and then a tree and yep. then the humans. Yep. You know. The logo came out very interesting. There's a story behind that. Like, there's a story behind everything. But um, I sent the Earth, not the logo, the, just the name Earth, to someone who designs logos and waited like a month. And I said, where's the logo? Where's the logo? And she sent it back, and it was just a font with a leaf. <laughs> And I was really disappointed. I mean, really disappointed. And I was over at my friend's house and I said to her, I'm so disappointed in this. I just was waiting to be wowed, especially after a month. And her husband was like, calm down, calm down. I'm going to see if I can come up with something for you. So he actually designed the logo. Wow. And the, he was the elephant and they were all the same except for the R was a raccoon and the H was a horse. And I said, we have to have a water element and we have to have humans because humans are controlling the planet. And so he came back with this beautiful logo and I'm so proud that he did that for me and so happy with it. That is really cool. And I, I never caught on to the fact that it's the, like... E for elephant, right. A for animal. A for animal. Exactly. I actually missed that part because I always thought it was water instead of river, and it just threw everything off. So exactly, that, that's even and, cooler. And that's why I, I took over. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, shut up, John. I got this. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think um, one thing that both Danny and I are very focused on, and that we actually bonded over early on when we became buds, is leadership and leadership training. And Danny has spoken repeatedly about the fact that you are an incredible leader. And I'm wondering, since you came into the zoo, not with a leadership background and and everything, um, how did you develop as a leader? And how would you recommend that other people develop leadership skills? I think the most important part of being a leader is to let your staff go sometimes. I think it's really important that if they have an idea and you're like on the fence about it and you're not sure it's going to work is to let them go at it. Even if it's, it's something that fails, because I think that's really important. I don't like to micromanage. I like people to take themselves and expand their own knowledge and become their own leader. So I think it's really important to allow that to happen and, you know, there's been times and I have staff, it happened a couple of weeks ago where one of the staff members said to me, oh, I'm never going to live this down. I said, no, no, it was a good learning experience, you know, and I think that's really important. Obviously, you know, you have to stay within some perimeters, but I think it's really important to let people go because otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to expand your programs. And when people are micromanaged, they're not empowered. So I think we need to really empower people to do this and, you know, expect that they're going to make mistakes. You know, there are going to be mistakes made because I've sure made plenty of them. There's no doubt there. Yeah. And going off of that too, I was talking a little bit before about how, like, I'm in a unique position. I've been, you know, kind of in control of the bird department for the last, like, seven years now. And I feel like the opportunities that I have working here and the way that I've been able to grow professionally in the bird training field specifically, because it's kind of its own little niche within the zoological community, 
I feel like I wouldn't have been able to do that anywhere else. And when people ask what my background is, I say I have just been learning on my own at the zoo for seven years. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without the support of Betsy and the family and all the opportunities that you guys have given me for professional development, like sending me to conferences and even beyond that, just giving me the time and space to like train staff and train the birds the way that like I feel like is best for the birds, but also for our mission as, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a conservation organization and training all these natural behaviors, but also training lots of husbandry behaviors that just make the lives of the birds so much better. And we're just learning so much in general in the zoological community. And you guys, I feel like, give the keepers the opportunity to learn those things on our own and then take that information and run with it. And I just feel like that doesn't, from people that I've spoken to at other facilities, that just doesn't always happen because everything is so micromanaged. And there are definitely benefits of being micromanaged and following things to a T and like, you know, referencing a book and everything. But I also think there's benefits of the way that we've been able to do it here. And Well, thank you. And I, and I think that's true. And, you know, I don't think I could ever be a director at a city-run micromanaged zoo because here we can. We don't have to go to... The board is my family. So our board of directors is my family, but where we all have a special niche. You know, mine's conservation education. My sister is the CFO. My brother is the president and the vet. My other two brothers do all groundskeeping. So that's my niche. And when I run with it, nobody stops me. You know, nobody says you can't do that, usually anyway. (laughs) But And I think that's, that is so valid because when you're in a different situation, oftentimes you have to go to a committee, you have to go to board meeting, you have to wait six months to get approval, then you have to get, you know, money approval. And I think, you know, developing earth and also with my family allowing earth to have all that membership money, which keeps us um, fiscally solvent, is really important. And, um, again, when people find out that that's happening, I think they're genuinely surprised that we devote so much to conservation and education. We have a trumpeter swan project where we have trumpeter swans here at the zoo. And when they hatch out cygnets, that's what the baby swans are called. We, um, they get, they grow up with their parents, but then in the fall, we take those cygnets and they fly to Iowa and in the spring they're released And obviously we couldn't go out during COVID, but prior we've gone out and released the swans ourselves back out into the wild. And when people find out about that program, they're like, you just donate those swans to the program? And absolutely, yes, we do. We actually did a video about it, which was really heartwarming. And one of our head zookeepers, Dwayne, talked about how, you know, it came around full circle and how it, it just made him so proud to be a zookeeper. And it was really heartwarming. And we're going to continue with that project. And we've also donated over $100,000 to rhino conservation in South Africa. So, again, when you say that to somebody, they're like, what? You know? And the blue-throated macaw project, they're always so grateful. And that's something I really value as well. I mean, Danny loves it. I love it. Because they put these nest boxes out. So you can visually see the result of your hard work, right? You can see these birds coming out of their nest boxes and thriving and surviving. And, and they even have our names on the nest yes. boxes. Yes. <laughs> you so know, cool. and the name Earth is on the nest boxes, so which is great. And um, we'll continue to support more conservation efforts, and some are monetary and some we work directly with. So those are really important and very rewarding. Yeah, and I think what's also cool is I feel like the last few years we've really focused on like how people learn and how to best spread our message. Like we were talking earlier, you were saying like, you know, it's better to inspire kids because it's easier to do that and in turn they'll inspire their parents and Mm -hmm. I think we've like we just recently all the work Diana has been working with Autism Alliance and we just became certified with that Um, and we're really focusing on how we can best support the community in learning with us and growing with us in this journey and this mission to um, you know conserve and protect. Absolutely and that's such a valid point Danny because you know the educators that are in the zoo doing the work 
see how the people are responding. And, you know, back in the day, I would do three 45-minute presentations out on the deck at Earth, and people would sit completely through them. You know, some people would get up maybe if they had a crying kid and walk away or whatever, but they would sit and listen, you know, and this was before technology. Now everybody's glued to their phones, so we get we people have about a five minute attention span and we've acknowledged you know the changes and how people learn so we've we've implemented different things like keeper talks mm-hmm. and sloth encounters and you know we have little carts where people take out one animal and an educator will talk about that one animal for 5 or 10 minutes so we have to conform to our audiences as well. It's not just that they're going to sit down on the bleachers and hang out for 45 minutes anymore. It just doesn't happen. Even with the school kids, um, there's just so much instant gratification these days that we have to accommodate our guests too. Yeah, I feel like Lauren has been doing a really great job of that too with understanding the reaction of the audience and if this works, if it doesn't work, like she's really about like time is of the essence when families are at the zoo and she's a mom, so she gets it. You know, she's got a little one and that's like a, an amazing perspective to have. And then I feel like with us down at the show arena as trainers, we really value how the birds learn and how we can alter our behavior to get the behavior we want from them. So that's kind of what we do with the public. If we have a show that didn't go so well, we're like, okay, what could we have done differently to, you know, get the response that we want from the audience? So absolutely. Cause I always say you can, you can train your spouse with positive reinforcement, you know, try it at home. Try this at home. <laughs> and that is why Paul is such a good husband to Danny. She's been working on him for a long time now. <laughs> no, but um, actually, that, that's interesting that you talked about audience analysis in particular, because one thing that I do in my personal life a lot is try to figure out ways that I can help more. Like this podcast is a great way for me to help spread the conservation message, get the word out about the amazing zoos out there and the work that y'all are doing. Um, But I I always try to think of other things I can do. And one thing that I've thought about doing, and I I haven't yet, but um, is I am a performer. Professionally, this is what I do. And one of the things that I'm the best at in my job is audience analysis. I will be watching an audience, watching a show. I I used to, in, in the show I do now, I can't do this so much, but in bands, I would adjust things that we were doing on the fly to how the audience was reacting to give them a better show. And, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of the shows and a lot of the things that happen at zoos could benefit from having a, a consultant come in who does entertainment. So, like, I'll come and watch the show from the perspective of watching the audience. And I will say, oh, hey, this is working. You lost 30% of your audience on this one. And also your sound system sucks. Or is really great. Yeah. Or whatever. Um, I can't tell you how many shows I've been to at zoos that have music and, you know, somebody mic'd. And the music is so loud that you can't hear the person talking. And it kills the entire educational message. And that's, I guess they've just never had somebody who actually pays attention to sound and speaking, which is a thing we have to do in my career. Um, So yeah, at some point I've thought, you know, that might be something that I want to start looking into offering a little bit more because I think that is, you know, people debate whether or not to say that zoos are entertainment versus education. But I am a firm believer that you get educated by being entertained. You know, there's absolutely. a reason Sesame Street is Sesame Street, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we always say. We pull them in with entertainment, and while they're here, we're going to educate them. So those that's a very valid point, for sure. And we've actually done research um, projects with visitor behavior. So we've tracked visitor v- behavior, and they say that the average person in the United States spends less than 30 seconds looking at an exhibit. So it's our job to try and pull them in. And one of the things that we're doing now is, actually right now, where we have part of our rhino installation project in progress. So what that will be is it's going to be a TV with buttons so kids can, you know, tactically touch the buttons and videos will play about conservation. That's really awesome. The uh, Georgia Aquarium just recently installed some new... um, touchscreen-based signage rather than their, their normal signage, and uh, only in some parts of it. But the last time I was there, there were lines of kids to use the touchscreens. And every other sign, people were just walking by. And I was like, boom, there it is, right there. Like, the fact that kids are lining up to learn about animals is so exciting. 
you know. And so true. So yeah. true. Plus, you know, we have signage, but it's all in English. And I mean, more than half of our guests don't speak English. So rather than putting multiple signs up all over the place, that's a great idea. You know, and visually, if you can see the message, the words don't necessarily, you know, matter. They can, they can go through all the different cultures. You know, if you can visually get that message out there mm-hmm. without having to have so much signage anywhere. Because who wants to walk through the zoo and just have plastered with signs? And uh, it's funny, a lot of people stand in front of the exhibits and say, I wonder what kind of animal that is when there's a sign right beside them. See it all the time. All the or, time. Or misidentify the animal yeah. that is written, their name is written directly below, you know? And, you know, I see it all the time. Um, and I think, you know, especially adapting is important too, because like, I'll tell you right now, I love learning about animals. I am super passionate about it. But if I'm at a zoo, I'm not taking time to read the sign it's in, in its entirety. I will snap a photo on my phone of your sign and read it at home when I can't actively look at the adorable animal, you know, because I have literally been reading signage and heard everyone go, <gasps> and then I look up and I missed whatever you it missed, was. You missed like, something. No. Um, so I do think signage is important. Obviously, education, like we said, it all goes back to that. But it's 2021, and you're right. There are ways to um, to educate beyond that. You know, I've I've even started to wonder if things like oh, some of those exhibits, like the things where you see a sign where it's like spread out your arms, and then you can compare your you know your wingspan to the wingspan of a bird or something, and then you also have some animal facts written on it. And then the people might not read the animal facts, but when they're looking at the photo of themselves later, they're also seeing those facts, you know, adapting to modern, modern times and modern tech is, is important. I think it's really cool that y'all are doing that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I so agree with you because less is more now, you know, if my grandmother was sitting here, she was a school teacher, she'd probably say, you know, slap him on the wrist with the ruler. <laughs> but, you know, things have definitely changed and the changes here over the last 50 years are extraordinary, you know, and we continue to do the best we possibly can for the animals, which is our main priority. You know, it's difficult because being open six months and closed six months, we're always trying to find, you know, other ways to expand on the zoo and what else can we do? So um, this year we've decided to do this Festival of Illumination, which is the Chinese Lantern Festival, to try and get income in. And, you know, when we first started talking about it, I thought, what are the animals going to think of all these huge lanterns? But so far they've been interested in them. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, it's been pretty funny to see. You know, we have a big whale in front of the chimps, and I thought they were just going to be like... What's going on over there? But they're always checking it out, looking at it. So it's kind of funny. So uh, we're talking about all kinds of cool stuff, and I'm, I'm enjoying this tremendously. But I think that we need to get just a random cool animal story because I'm told you're full of them. And, and so just, uh, just tell me a cool Wait, animal story. You know, it's funny because, you know, many years ago, let's say over 30 years ago, I raised many different kinds of animals and, you know, back then it was, it was a different time. You know, we don't raise a bottle, raise any animals unless we absolutely have to. Right. Of course. Um, so like our lions, when they were born, we had their, their mom was here on a breeding loan. And when she had the cubs, she didn't take care of them. So they were at my house and, uh, <laughs> it's always fun having three lion cubs in your house, but I've raised so many different types of animals at one time. I had a Siberian tiger and a black leopard in my home. And uh, they were young, you know, because nobody wants those animals in their home. But it was so funny. I was at a career fair one year, and a girl came up to me, and she said, are you Betsy? Did you used to live on in Blackstone on Lincoln Street? And I said, yes. And she goes, we bought your house. And all of the bite marks and the windowsills, we left them that way because we thought it was so cool. <laughs> That's what she said to me. So... I can remember I was I was dating this guy. Oh, this was 20, 25 years ago. And I had brought um, this tiger to his house. And he, he said, to, we were having dinner with friends, and he said, well, what happened to that tiger? It's awfully quiet in here. And I went into the living room, and I said to him, you know that hole that was in the side of your couch? He goes, there's no hole on the side of my couch. I said, well, the whole side of the couch is gone. 
So the tiger chewed up the whole arm. But, you know, I mean, over the years, there's been so many things. I had one of my sons actually wrote his college essay about how he didn't realize that his life was different from anybody else's life till he became an adult. And he wrote his college essay on how he appreciated growing up the way he did, but he had no idea. Right, right. And, um, you know, I took him, this particular son, I have two boys, and I took him to the rainforest when he was nine years old on a trip I was doing with students. And his appreciation for how we live here in the United States in the country club was, it was unbelievable. I think everybody should bring their nine-year-old to a rainforest, right? And uh, it was an amazing trip. And just seeing how he changed with that trip and seeing how people live. Because I brought all the kids uh, pencils that live in the village. And he was like, you're going to give them a pencil? you got to give them something better than a pencil. And he was amazed to see how happy everybody was. So growing up in our house was pretty different. We had, um, there's been times when we've had monkeys born where, you know, I have to say that half the zoos would probably say you have to put them down and the other half would bottle raise them. You know, that something happened with the mom or whatever. Maybe she didn't produce milk or maybe the baby was sick and small. So I've had monkeys in my home. I've had kangaroos in my home. I don't still to this day mind raising kangaroos because they have very low intelligence, so they have little learned behavior. So when you raise a kangaroo, their instincts are just the most important part of how they navigate through their lives so they don't develop any strange behaviors you know because you don't have to you're not teaching them can as a matter of fact instead of them thinking they're human they think you're a kangaroo <laughs> so which has its own problems with you know raising them up but i've had lots of kangaroos um the african porcupines are another animal that are really fun to raise and don't develop odd behaviors and are just awesome for presentations and shows so I have a I have a lot of animal stories. I guess one of the craziest ones is, and there's so many crazy, but <laughs> this particular animal, this was years ago. He was a bush baby, and we were out on a program, and I was driving the van, and he was sitting in his little crate, and the person with me, Cindy, said, do you think it would be okay if I take him out? And I said, oh, um, you know, when you think, could something go wrong? And you're thinking maybe it could, and then you you just do it anyway. And I said, yeah, sure, you can take him out. Well, as soon as she took him out and he was sitting in her lap, he was by the dash, and we were on the highway in the middle lane, you know, going 70 miles an hour. And the motion of moving, he panicked a little bit, and he jumped on my face. Oh, no. So, and I'm driving. So that, that was through caution to the wind with that. That was a little scary. <laughs> But, I mean, we've had amazing things happen. I had a monkey one time on a Zoomobile program, and the person with me, I said, whatever you do, do not let me handle that crate. And they opened up the crate, and the monkey was loose in the school. So that was a fun time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These things actually happened. And uh, But there's also been some things that aren't so funny or and disturbing. You know, when we lose animals here... When we lost our, our rhinos before that were in their 40s, that was a really tough time. And one of the first kangaroos that I raised um, that we had to put down because she had cancer. And that's something I don't remember happening when I was a kid. Not a lot of cancer. Um, today, we do have more cases of that. So um, it would appear that's environmental. I mean, we've never done any studies on this, but it's happening more. And those, and just to be clear, just let me interrupt for one second. When you say it's happening more, you don't mean at Southwick's. You mean in general? Yes, I just don't want anyone to hear that and think you got. You know, it's it's in general. This is happening in the population. Yes. Now go on. Absolutely. (laughs) And you know things like that. It can be hard when you raise animals up, and because everything dies, a lot of things get sick. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think as humans, when something dies, we're like, "What happened?" But we forget that. We lose friends and colleagues and grandparents and parents and people all the time. So it's it's not a rarity to have animals, especially when their lifespans aren't a long period of time. But the rhinos can live to be into their 40s. So And the two rhinos that we have now that I love to death, Thelma and Louise, are 13. <laughs> so 
And we do rhino encounters with them. And people love that. And all of that money does go towards conservation. I mean, I have stories, gross stories, you know, pee and poop stories. Poop story. That are, I get plenty of those. (laughs) I mean. We do like our poop stories. Poop story. You you never know. Um, And um, I have other stories too uh, that I don't know if I should say on here, but about you know, animals and their sexual behavior. Oh, share, stuff share like away. That. We've done whole episodes on that. It's I pretty mean, interesting. Anything that you want to share, trust me, people love this stuff. And it's mostly adults that listen to this podcast. Well, we don't have a male rhino anymore, but when we did, and they were actually down by the Earth Discovery Center, and I was down there all the time at that point, anytime you ever heard anybody go, oh my God, <laughs> it was because the male's penis was out. That was absolutely... And um, we actually have a kid that works here that thought our taper had a fifth leg (laughs) because it actually hits the ground. I know it's pretty impressive. I have to say (laughs) that's amazing and intimidating all at once. But, you know, even when we do the rhino encounter, I talk about how animals breed because, you know, it's not very romantic all the time. It can be kind of disturbing to um, see, you know, very, very aggressive behavior. When our chimps were younger and they were of breeding age, it was extremely aggressive. You know, the male just kind of throws the female down. And um, I think we forget about that. So when I wanted to get our rhinos bred, um, I was a little nervous about that, thinking of getting a male rhino in here and having them, you know, basically get get have very aggressive behavior from a male rhino. And we still haven't gone that route yet, so we'll see what's going to happen with that. But there's so many variables when it comes to animals. One of my colleagues wants wanted to have over the years a Valentine's Day program where we talk about how animals do it because it's so interesting. You know, it's just crazy. Like when you see a snake intertwined, like what what are they doing? Or a bird, mm-hmm. you know? It's it's interesting behavior and courtship behavior is bizarre. Oh yeah, you we know, did uh, we did two episodes called Rossafari After Dark last year for for Valentine's Day, and I think I, I want to do it again. It was really fun. It's exactly what you're talking. Oh about. Oh my gosh, that sounds so interesting. Yeah, it's great stuff, and it's 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 interesting. It's fascinating, and it you know I I, I personally think it, it's kind of important for people to realize like everything does this. I mean, pretty much, you know, and it's like, I don't know, our culture is so into sex shaming and and all of that. And it's, it's pretty funny that you can come and you hear that grunting noise and you know that tortoises are having sex, you know, what halfway across the zoo, you just, you know, whatever. And that's pretty amusing, actually. That's very amusing. And, um, yeah, you know, the one thing that I always wish I had seen here, which I never have is the giraffes breeding. I've never seen that. So I just think it would be so interesting. Like, yeah. that must be quite a feat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and speaking of that, what a great transition. Tell me about the new giraffe. We have a baby giraffe. Her name's Dolly. And um, she was born, I think it was three and a half weeks ago now. Three and a half to four weeks. I think this is the fourth week, actually. And her mom is Molly. And Molly was born here about 13 years ago. And she was born at five feet tall and 80 pounds. So we pretty much assumed that she was a preemie and born early and a teeny little thing. And we had to scoop her up and take her up to Tufts where they put her in their neonatal unit. And she was up there for quite some time. You know, we, you got to get colostrum into them right away. Right, right. And she couldn't get up. She was very weak. As a matter of fact, one of the guys that works here could pick her right up underneath her belly. And we brought her up there. Oh, my. Gosh. Now, 12, 13 years later, her mom's pregnant with, I think, her fifth baby. But because she was hand-raised, she didn't know how to care for her babies. So I think she would have tried with this one because, again, they have learned behavior. So she has watched the other giraffe in the enclosure nurse her baby, care for her baby, and she seemed to be it seemed to be that she was going to do that. However, she didn't bag up with milk. So in the first milk, which is colostrum from the mom, is essential. A baby giraffe has to have colostrum. So unlike a human baby where they're born and they already have an immune system, a giraffe doesn't. 
So that colostrum is essential. You know, a human baby can go on formula and they're going to be fine. But a giraffe must get colostrum to develop an immune system. Otherwise, it's it's um, it can be touch and go. And that's one of the reasons we've had them up at Tufts. And so this time we took uh, Dolly from Molly and got her on cow colostrum because we had cow colostrum from the local farm, which is the first milk. It's the first milk that comes out of the mom that has all those antibodies. And you want those antibodies to be from the general area around here where the giraffe is native to, to build up their immune systems. After that, we put her on a powdered formula that's closely close to um, a goat formula, which is good for them. But that colostrum is essential. And unless you have a goat that just gave birth, you're not going to get the colostrum, you know? So that was great that we have this partnership with our local farm, which is wonderful. And she did great. The only thing that really scared me about the birth was the fact that Molly just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. She was the widest giraffe pregnant I'd ever seen. And I was really nervous she was going to have a six-foot-tall big male. And by gosh, she had a six-foot-tall big female. (laughs) And we were all pretty shocked that this baby came in at over 150 pounds. Wow. And she's still our most petite giraffe. But our head zookeeper came in early in the morning, no baby. And when he went back to check on her around 11 a.m., there was the baby. So clearly she had a pretty uneventful birth and everything went fine. So I was really happy about that because, you know, there's nothing more disconcerting or hard to deal with, especially for our vet here, who's my brother, is having a baby that's too big, you know, for the mom and having a hard time passing it through the birth canal. Right. So all is well. She's as cute as a button. And I just love the giraffes. I love what I love about giraffes, especially the babies, is they're so interested in everything. And they're visual. You know, they have the big, huge eyes. They're not going around. For instance, the other day I went down to the rhinos and I wasn't talking. Usually when I walk in, I talk and I say, hey, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. I walked in and then I said, hey, Louise. And she jumped right up off the ground (laughs) because they can only see three feet. She didn't see me coming. She didn't hear me coming. And she jumped right up. And it was (laughs) rather funny, actually. But with the giraffes, they're always scoping things out. They're always in tune visually and also hearing as well. Very cool. So how do you how do you feed a, a baby giraffe? Is there just a really big bottle? It's a really big bottle. That's it's four amazing. quarts, yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 about a foot tall. That's amazing. And she she was so big and healthy. I said she looked like a month old giraffe that she started uh drinking from the bottle really well. So we've been really lucky with that. That sounds like a heck of a sight to see. Oh yeah. Just a bottle. <laughs> That's a awesome. Big, big, huge bobble. We have one that's twice that size, too. Wow. Yeah. Nice. That's very entertaining. Um, so, you know, you're, you're talking about um, baby animals, and um, you have baby animals of the human type. So, um, what's it like knowing that, like, you're, you have this legacy for your, for your, your family and, and for your children that is a zoo and that is a conservation organization and, and all of this, that stuff. What, what, what's that, what does that feel like? How does that, what does that mean to you? You know, it's working in a family business really has its challenges. I always say during meetings, sometimes we all turn 12 again, you know? <laughs> and um, so it definitely has its challenges, but it also has its rewards, you know, and sometimes it's not not so easy to navigate with the family, but other times I feel really proud and really blessed that my grandfather and my father created, along with my mother, of course, created this legacy, and my uncle was actually involved in it too, and um, he just had an untimely death in 1977, so he died in his 30s, so this legacy is so important, so valuable, and so cherished. And I just hope we can keep it going. You know, to go to, you know, the fourth generation is really, really hard. I think it's only like they say like 18% of businesses survive that transition and succession. But our goal is to keep it going and to keep it in the family and to nurture the business and develop it and grow it and expand it. And I just hope that we can do that. It's, um, takes a lot of commitment and a lot of work and 
I'm hoping we can do that. Fingers are always crossed. Fair, fair. Um, and then uh, since in your position, you mentioned, oh, I was just down with the rhinos the other day and I was hanging out with Dolly. <laughs> do you just, if you need animal time, can you just be like, you know what? Today I'm going to go hang out with the taper and like all of that good stuff. I do sometimes get up, walk out of my office and go for a cruise through the zoo Amazing. or I will go sit with the rhinos. Nice. And there have been occasions in the afternoon that I'll go down there and they'll come over and they'll lay down right in the, by the rhino enclosure area. I only do that in the late afternoon because you can't see them. They're off exhibit space kind of, so visitors can't see them. So I try not to do that during the day, but I do like my rhino time. And I have to say, Louise, especially if I rub her belly, she will stick out her leg and curl her tail. (laughs) And someone said to me one day, I thought curling of the tail was, um, they, an unhappy behavior. I said, clearly it is not (laughs) clearly it is not. So rhinos like belly rubs. So, and Thelma, I call the rhino dog because she's just so mellow. She's nice. extremely mellow. Nice. It's so funny watching Betsy approach the rhino exhibit. If she's doing an encounter, or if we want to go say hi to the rhinos and she'll just be like, girls, and they, they just come <laughs> running over. You have like the most awesome video that you posted showing your friend the rhinos or something. And you were like, come on, babies. And they just came out of their indoor enclosure and your friend was just like, holy moly. Yeah. She said, I was surprised. She said, holy cow. I said, I thought, I thought you were going to say something else. (laughs) And, uh, I was standing there and it was the spring. So it was a cool day. So they were in their house because they have a heated floor as well as a heated building. Nice. And I was like, come on girls, come on out, come on out. And I pulled the flap and they literally ran out side by side. And I thought she was just going to fall over. She was like, Oh my God. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, so I have a question for you, shooting it back to Earth for a second. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of species that are in trouble. Just like a lot. Okay, you do know that. Cool. And um, so how do you choose what you, you know, what y'all are going to put your conservation efforts and money and partnerships and all that stuff towards? Like how how does that decision get made? Well, when I started with rhino conservation, I started with an organization in this country, which I think is a wonderful organization. But for us, we want to have the money we donate matter. So I spent a lot of time searching and searching for organizations that are what we call boots on the ground, so to speak, so that they are organizations that are working directly with the animals in their particular area, like the nest boxes. That's a grassroots organization, Project Rhino, they're working directly with the rhinos in the reserves in South Africa. You know, we could donate our money to a large organization, but it's not going to matter. You know, I donated $15,000 one time to an organization, and I said, I hope this money is going to make a difference. And they were kind of like, well, you know, it's $15,000. And one year we donated to um, the Friends of the Chimps Sanctuary in Uganda. We donated $2,500. And that $2,500 ran their entire summer camp program for kids for the whole summer. Wow. So we find organizations that are not only helping animals, but are also, you know, socially responsible in their areas. So maybe they developed a conservation kids camp where they pull local kids into the camps and, um, which is what Project Rhino did with the Beijing conservation kids camps because, if the local people aren't educated about these animals and they're afraid of them, they're certainly not going to protect them. So one of the things, and you know, I think people think if you live in South Africa, then you're very familiar with these animals, but these people aren't, they're in their villages and 10 minutes away, there's a wildlife reserve and they've never been there. Right. Right. So a lot of these local kids are learning and then getting involved in conservation. So we try to really find those programs that are focusing on that. And we've also supported, you know, some programs in Honduras and Costa Rica, as well as we support cheetah conservation. And next year, I want to start with a giraffe conservation project. So each year, we try to focus on things that we can work well with, but also thing, also conservation um, organizations that we can help support financially and the ones that are really doing the work. And I have to say, we, we support the Nyasa lion project in Mozambique and Colleen big is the one that does the field research. 
She is amazing. These people that work out in the field are amazing. You know, they don't, some of them don't have electricity and running water and they've chosen to live, you know, 20 or 30 years out in the wild with these animals to help them. And the new, the new turn in conservation is definitely conservation for the community. So that's really important to us because if you don't have community involvement and community support, you're not going to be effective. You know, it's just not going to happen. Absolutely. It is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're going to laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari Poop Story. Hit me. Um, I'll tell you, there is a lot of times that grossness has happened. I don't, <laughs> we had our capybaras in a pool up. It's changed now. This was years ago. And I slipped and fell into it. Oh, and capybaras no. poop in the water. Yep. I also sw- fell into a swamp pool one time. And there's nothing like scrubbing a swamp pool out. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Those are some interesting things. And I have to say, one time the Four Seasons Hotel in Boston hired me to go up to bring a kangaroo into the Four Seasons Hotel (laughs) because they were launching their hotel in Australia. Well, I guess I should have told them that kangaroos poop, you know. (laughs) I just figured figured they knew. But the the president or someone of the hotel, the big wig there, was standing there and a kangaroo peed and pooped like right by his foot. (laughs) And um, he was not impressed, I have to say. And then another time I was up at the radio stations in Worcester. I had a goat and a llama, baby llama. And the DJs for the morning show said, oh, they're having a conference in the other room, all the bigwigs for the station. Bring them in there. I said, I don't think that's a good idea. I really don't. Well, they talked me into it. So I brought a llama and a goat into their conference room, and they both peed and pooped right there on the floor. <laughs> And um, I thought it was going to be kind of amusing. They didn't find it amusing. They said they had just recarpeted the building the day before. <laughs> the day before. And I had an alpaca one time um, in an elevator at a school, right? And I was riding up this elevator, and the principal was in the elevator with me, and the alpaca pooped in the elevator. And you're trapped. <laughs> we were trapped. And um, that was interesting. I stopped using llamas and alpacas and zoomobiles a long time ago because <laughs> there was a lot of poop going on. And um, I have to say there's been a couple of times with tortoises and their poop's disgusting. You're standing there talking about them to a group of people and all of a sudden it lets go and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Not a thing. And it's a lot of cleanup. You know, with birds, Danny, you always know, you can expect they're going to poop. You know it. So you hold them wherever it's going to happen because it happens inevitably. But, oh, yeah. All right. That was the most poop (laughs) stories I think I'll ever have in an episode. I appreciate that. Um, Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This was my pleasure. I enjoyed this so much. Thank you. I'll tell you what, Betsy is not the only one who enjoyed that so much. So did I. And I'm guessing so did all of you. It was so cool to have Danny back on the pod and in a different way. And um, man, I could have listened to Betsy's stories all day. That was awesome. And speaking of things that are awesome, I would like to say thank you to my awesome Red Panda Level patrons, Laura Shank and PJ Bevan. And remember, friends, until next time, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.